Amen. And good morning, everybody. Man, it is so good to be back at Cinco Ranch. My name is Greg Anderson, and uh, such a pleasure to see your smiling faces again. Can we smile? Everybody? All right. Very good. Very good. Hey, I want to thank you all very much for your patience as I'm wrapping up a little bit of work out in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, their committee has made a recommendation, and their shepherds are engaged in prayer and discernment right now. And that has been a lot of fun, but uh, I'm also excited about this next chapter, an opportunity to work with uh, you all. You may be kind of wondering, why am, I, why am I here? Who is this guy? Why is he here? Well, you're in a season of transition, and I work with an organization, Hope Network Ministries, Interim Ministry Partners is under our partnership umbrella, and um, we help churches in transition, and that's where you are as a congregation. Um, I'm here just to, to come alongside and to serve as a, a coach to your search team, provide a listening ear, uh, dialogue back and forth a little bit with your uh, shepherds. As it's appropriate, we're gonna be in the word together. Uh, we are also going to strive over the next several weeks to reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. You are in the middle of what I refer to today, and the next time I am with you, uh, as being in the and. Being in the and. And now you know why today's sermon is titled, uh, what it is. You're in an in-between time between Bo's preaching ministry and uh, the ministry of the next preaching minister. God's going to send your way. And my job is to help you in this season of and by being in the word with you, by praying and processing with your elders uh, as I said earlier, by coaching the search team. I'm not here as a candidate and I'm not here to impose my opinions on you, okay? Uh, for the next four months, we're just going to walk together. Uh, we're going to pray together. We're going to serve together. And we're going to give God the glory for what happens in this time of transition, this time of living in the and. It's important for you to know that I don't walk on water. I've only known two people that ever walked on water, and it didn't turn out too well for Peter, if you remember. Uh, ultimately, it did, but uh, he kind of struggled there just a little bit. Uh, I'm fallible, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to make some mistakes and probably say some things that afterward you're going to have to catch me and say, yeah, we don't say that around here. So that's, uh, we'll, we'll work all that out together because all of us make mistakes, right? All of us do. So praise God, we have a Savior who has lavished upon us his glorious grace that he's freely given us and the one he loves. Again, quoting from the book of Ephesians, this time chapter one and verse six. So after wrapping up my time in Mesa over the next two to three Sundays, I probably will be with you about uh, three Sundays a month on average, um, assuming that the next couple of sermons go well. We'll see how that all plays out. Uh, but I'm gonna set my travel time uh, with you so that if any of you individually or as a small group or as a Bible class or a family, if you'd like to uh, visit 
And we're going to try to build in some bumper time on the front end or the back end for us to do that. We just live up in College Station, so it only takes about an hour and 10 minutes or so to get down here. Um, I love coffee, and the only time I love coffee more is when somebody else buys it. So if you ever want to take me out to coffee, that would be great. We'll be happy to sit down, have that conversation. I might even buy your coffee from time to time, so we'll see how that goes. You can just let one of the elders know. Uh, they also have my cell number and my uh, email, and so we'll, we'll be happy to connect as the next several weeks go by. Last May, I wrapped up my time as lead minister of the A&M Church of Christ up in College Station, Texas, and became a co-leader of Hope Network Ministries, one of three. Uh, and the A&M Church of Christ is still our church home, but with their blessing, I am now engaging in a greater kingdom ministry. And so during one of my last Sundays there, I preached a, a sermon on Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 and 23. And the reason I preached that text was to prepare the A&M Church of Christ for their interim season. And I couldn't think of a more fitting text for us to be in today as you are in these early stages of your interim season. And so we're going to spend most of our time today, we're just going to read Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We're actually not going to spend our time there. I'm going to talk about the greater context. And then the next time I'm with you, we're going to actually drill down a little bit more into this passage in Galatians chapter 5. So let's start with reading this text together one more time this morning as we center our minds on living in the and. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now to really understand this text, I think we have to see how Galatians 5 is situated in the greater story of God. So where should we begin? Most times I find the best place to begin is in the beginning. So I wanna ask you to explore a few verses with me this morning in Genesis chapters two and three. We'll start reading in Genesis two and I want you to pay a little attention to verses eight and nine. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God, we read a little bit later in verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly 
die. So let's pause there for just a second. God placed man in the garden for two reasons. To work the garden and to take care of it. To work it and to take care of it. As a result, man could be nourished by the fruit of the garden, especially from the fruit from the tree of life. This is very important. This had nothing to do with man's labor. It had everything to do with God's eternal nature. You see the difference? Didn't have anything to do with man's labor. It had to do with God's eternal nature. Now, we don't know a lot about the tree of life. Um, We know it's very powerful. We know it's a source of strength. We know that it's a source of healing. I want you to notice these words after the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live. Say that last word with me forever. So it's pretty powerful tree, right? Pretty powerful fruit. We also know that this tree of life is present at the beginning, just as we read in Genesis chapter three, and that it will be present at the end and beyond, and that its healing powers are eternal. I want you to notice the following text in Revelation chapter 22. John is writing and he says, and then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. How powerful is it? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. So much has happened and so much is happening between the tree of life in the garden and the tree of life in the new Jerusalem. I call this time between these trees, and it's the same tree, but between the tree in the garden and the tree in the new Jerusalem, I call this time between the trees the great and. A time frame that is comprised of billions of little ands in the greater context of humankind. Are you with me so far? One big and comprised of billions of little ands, little stories in the context of the greater story of God. In his book, Between Two Trees, Shane Wood describes the great and this way. And so, the Bible ends where it begins, in a garden paradise. God with humanity, enjoying the shade of the tree of life. 
The problem is life isn't lived under Eden's tree of life, nor beneath the healing leaves of the tree in the new Jerusalem. Life is lived between these two trees. And between these two trees, life is hard. Can I get an oh yeah? Life between the trees. Life in the great end. It stretches us. Sometimes to the point of breaking. It presses us down. Sometimes to the point of crushing. Life sometimes causes us to cry out, God, where are you? Lord, have you, have you forgotten me? Is anybody there? Is anybody listening? In the great end, between the two trees, life's hard. But, this is very important, but if we make a subtle shift in our understanding of life between the trees, the tree of life in the original garden of God and the tree of life in the future city of God, then instead of being consumed by the hardship of life, we are empowered by the holiness of God who reframes our purpose while we're on this earth and helps us understand the good news of God that we offer to others. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into this tree of life for a few moments. Let's, uh, let's just sit under its canopy today. Let's marvel at what we find there. Let's taste the fruit. Let's see that it's good and let's share it with others as we partner with God to restore his creation, a creation that was disrupted by a serpent who bides his time just waiting for an opportunity to strike. We read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat from any tree in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And can't, can't you hear the evil laughter? <laughs> can't you just hear it? <laughs> You're not going to die. You will certainly not die. The woman said, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and, and you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And I think we've read this passage so many times. It's easy for us to read it and not be moved by it. Yet this episode reveals the devastating impact of breaking covenant with God. Shane Wood offers a little more insight. He describes it this way. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they were not merely disobeying a command, though indeed they were. They were not just committing an indiscretion, although indeed they did. The action was more dire. The result more severe. For sin is willful union with something or someone other than God. The problem of Genesis 3 wasn't only an infraction of the law, it was far worse. Humanity became one flesh with death. And I think the contrast is really evident when we compare the original intentions of God with humanity's disobedience. I just want you to see two passages side by side here that reveal the difference. Adam says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for God took her out of the man. You see that there in verses 24 and 25. And then we see this covenant language, the covenant um, outcome of the oneness of man and woman. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and united to his wife and they become one. You see the covenant language there? Then I want you to notice what happens in Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and it was pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, do you see what happens here? She gives some to Adam. Adam eats and then the, 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 the phrase, the, the, the punchline that shows us the devastating impact and then the eyes of both of them were open. I want you to notice just a couple of the words that I've circled as we compare these two side by side. Do you see the word united? Do you see the phrase they became one? But then you see something happen. They ate it. Adam ate. And what happens? The text says what? Say it with me. Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened to something different than what God had intended. And the results are immediate. Man and woman experience shame. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. They shift the blame. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And not only do they blame each other, Adam actually blames God. You see that in the text? The woman you gave me, right? And nothing is the same. Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the present. From that moment in time, humankind partnered with death. And church, if I had a year to preach on this, I, I, I still couldn't plumb the depths of all that happens in this turn of events. But I impress upon you this morning to grasp one simple truth with me. And it is this. The world God intended is not the world we live in, but the world we live in 
provides an opportunity to restore the world God intended. Are you with me? We don't live in the world that God intended, but we live in a world with opportunity to restore what God did intend. I love this quote by Michael Heiser in a book entitled The Unseen Realm. He says, all humans are divine imagers. But in our fallen condition, we don't often image God as we are able and as he intended. So here's a question I just want to process with you this morning for a little bit. How do we do that? How, how do we help restore the world that God intended? I think the answer is twofold. I think we work the garden of God and we take care of the garden of God. And the interim season when a church, when a congregation is in transition, it's just one little and within the greater and. And it provides an incredible opportunity for us to do just this, to work the garden of God and to take care of the garden of God. Let's explore just a little bit more. Do you remember what the trees in the garden produced? Do you remember? Here's a little reminder from Genesis chapter two, verse nine. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So God made trees that were beautiful. It's a reflection of his nature. It's a reflection of his glory. And he also made trees that produced fruit, fruit that wasn't just edible, but fruit that was good to eat. Fruit that was life-giving, food that was fully from God, but were on trees that were expected to be tended and harvested by man. Remember, humankind is placed in the garden to work the garden and to take care of the garden. That was God's intention. And as far as I can tell, there is nothing in Scripture that indicates God's intentions changed. I don't see anything in Scripture man was cursed because of his choices but that was a curse that was reversed through the sacrifice of Jesus praise God but man's curse didn't change God's intention which in a nutshell in a nutshell is this work to take care of what God has given you I'm boiling the great and down into one sentence, okay? <laughs> Work to take care of what God has given you. I think that's God's intention for humankind. You might think, well, it kind of just sounds Old Testament-y. I just made up a word there, but uh, I'm not sure if that really applies to us today. You might want to rethink that. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for, say that phrase with me, works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure or the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Just, just look at these words. 
And think about God's original intentions, equipped for works of service. What do you know? Isn't that simply just working with and taking care of others? Is it any wonder that Jesus refers to himself in this way in John chapter 15 and verse 5? I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that brings us to the heart of the matter. When we work to take care of what God has given us, something amazing begins to happen. We begin to bear fruit. But not just any fruit. I'm talking about fruit that's manifested by the same power of the very tree of life that we read about in Genesis 3 and Revelation 22. Fruit that heals the nations. Fruit that's from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's hear the word of the Lord again from Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These attributes, these characteristics, how many of you describe the places where you work using these terms? Oh, the people I work with are so gentle. They're so kind. They're so patient. Our customers are so loving. They have so much self-control. What about where you go to school? Is this how you describe your classmates or your teachers? Or would your teachers describe you that way as a student? How about when you talk about your spouse? My wife is so good. She's so gentle. She's so kind. My husband has so much self-control. He's so loving. How about when you describe your children? How about when you describe the Cinco Ranch Church? Do you see any of these characteristics in yourself? When you take a really long look in the mirror do you anticipate bearing this kind of fruit individually and collectively during this interim season and beyond church as as covenant people of god we should look for and and strive to produce this fruit in every aspect of our lives. Because if we don't, then we are falling into the exact same trap that Adam and Eve fell into. We're just falling into it all over again. And here's what that means. If we're not getting our nourishment from the Holy Spirit produced fruit of God, then we're getting our nourishment from the wrong source. And you want to know what happens when we covenant with death? You want to see how it plays out? Well, Paul describes it this way 
in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, I want you to see these two passages side by side. And I want to ask you to just take a moment and process the difference between these two lists. I don't know about you, but quite frankly, isn't this shocking? I mean, it certainly is sobering. In Galatians 5, Paul describes the outcomes of those who work and take care of what God has given them. Not in a works-based salvation sense, but in the this-is-what-pleases-God sense. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes the outcomes of partnering with death. And do you notice that when we compare these two lists side by side in bullet point form, do you notice that the latter is twice as long as the fruit of the Spirit? You see that? And I think that's a testimony of how devastating partnering with death is. And that's why it's critical as followers of Jesus Christ that we work to take care of what God has given us. Does this fruit of the Spirit not describe the very nature of Jesus himself? And how, how are these gifts manifested? God sent him to earth. God made him a son of Adam. And ultimately, between two trees, in the great and, he allowed his son to be raised up on another tree, a tree of death, so that you and I might be reconciled to God's original intention. Paul describes the scope of the distance between the two trees and the turning point that gives us hope and helps us understand why we're here. Paul describes it this way, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more observation from Shane Wood and then we'll close. The wages of sin or the essential end of sin or the necessary conclusion of sin is indeed death because sin is union with death. 
Sin isn't just a debt for which death is the consequence. Sin is willful union with death, ingestion of death, deformation. And thus, Christ's cross can't only be transferring humanity from the status of guilty of a damnable offense to innocent of all charges. Sin is uncreation. Becoming one flesh with death, which limits our capacity to unite with others, with God, and even with ourselves. Humanity created in the image of God, now marred with death's sting. Thus, since the problem of Eden is far more pervasive than first thought, so too must be the solution. And what, or perhaps better asked, who is that solution? And of course the answer is Jesus. Because you see, Adam and Eve chose disobedience. And the result was death. Jesus chose obedience. And the result was life. And the results of his choice were immediate. We are now free from our shame. Hebrews 12, 2. We no longer carry the blame. Galatians 3, 24. And nothing is the same. From an empty tomb to eternity. And so I leave you with this charge today. Work to take care of what God has given you. If it's a marriage, if it's a family, if it's a job, if it's a calling, if it's a whatever it is, whatever your circle of influence is, whatever your garden is, work to take care of what God has given you. If we commit to that, simply that, and not judging our successes by how productive somebody else's garden is, if I just work to take care of what God has given me, the fruit of the Spirit will come. We will be believers and an entire church will look like the fruit of the Spirit that we see expressed in Galatians 5. And I can't think of any better way in this life to be described. And I'll talk more about that with you the next time that I'm here. If you want to talk more, if your life looks more like Paul's list in his letter to Timothy than it does the fruit of the Spirit, and you're just so tired of carrying that weight, if you want to be reconciled to Jesus and start living the life that God has intended for you all along, all you have to do is just turn to a person next to you and say, I want to know more about that. There will be people standing in line to read through scripture with you. Perhaps you want to be baptized this morning. We are the priesthood of believers. You don't respond to a preacher. You respond to Jesus. Just turn to the person next to you and say, you know what, I... I think I'm ready to be baptized. And they'll know who to connect you with. 
so that we can take care of that before we leave here this morning. Church, how wonderful it is to have our sins washed away and to be the people that God intended, being made new in Christ. Let's, uh, let's stand together. Let's praise his name as we, uh, as we share this time of worship.